This morning we are going to break from our series in 2 Corinthians for one week. Uh, next week we will be back in 2 Corinthians 9, but this week we will be looking at the incarnation story, the story of Jesus' birth from a bit of a different perspective, actually three perspectives. We're going to look at three passages from the Gospels this morning, Luke chapter 3, Matthew chapter 1, and John chapter 1. And of these three passages, it would be my estimation that only the passage in John would be well known to you. We don't typically memorize genealogies. We don't typically use them in our morning devotionals. But what I would like us to see is that these are important parts of God's Word, and especially as these passages in Luke and Matthew show us, they tell us a good bit about who Jesus is. God has given this Word to us so that we might know who the Lord is. And so what I would like to do is just briefly look at a few segments of each of these passages, read them, and then we will look at each in turn. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you first to turn to Luke chapter 3. We read Luke chapter <coughs> 2, excuse me, and the account of Jesus' birth. And Luke chapter 3, verse 23 begins as follows. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 3 verse 23 begins. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then it continues to go down and trace Jesus' parentage, his father's father, his father's father's father, taking us all the way down to the end of the chapter. And I'd like to draw your attention to verse 38. It continues on, The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so it's significant there as we look at this account of Jesus' parentage, that Luke traces it all the way back to Adam himself, who is called the Son of God. Then in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew begins his gospel with what he calls the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he begins then with Abraham. He says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And then Matthew continues to go down, now descendants rather than ascendants. And he speaks of uh, Jesse and of David and of Jehoshaphat and of Hezekiah. And he concludes this section here in verse 17 with the following. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. And then as we turn to the Gospel of John, John begins in a different fashion, in a 
what we would call a cosmic fashion, not with Jesus' human descent, but he begins in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then if we pick up in verse 14, John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace, Upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so we see there that even as John has begun with a cosmic account of who Jesus is. He does describe Jesus' birth in a little bit of a different way. Saying that the word became flesh. And so this morning, what I would like us to do as we approach the Christmas season is to approach the incarnation story, the story of Jesus's birth through these three Gospels, how they tell us who Jesus is, why he came and what that means for us. And so first, I'd like us to see from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is the hope of all mankind. And then secondly, we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew and see that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. And then thirdly, we will turn to John's Gospel and see that Jesus is the Lord God himself. The hope of all mankind. The fulfillment of God's promises. And the Lord God himself. Let's begin then by looking at Jesus as the hope of all mankind. Luke begins this genealogy with Jesus and traces it up all the way to Adam. And he uses this genealogy as a way to wrap up his birth narrative. As we read earlier this morning, the birth narrative itself occurs in the previous chapter, in chapter 2. But all of Luke builds up till this point from its opening. Luke opens his gospel with Jesus' forerunner and cousin, John. The angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah and foretells the birth of John. Then Gabriel comes to Mary and foretells to her that she will bear a child and his name shall be Jesus, Jesus the Savior. And then we have the account of John's birth and then finally the Christmas story as we know it. Then we are introduced to John and his ministry and his preaching of repentance and of the one who is to come. And then we come now to this important genealogy, starting from Jesus, going to Adam. We might ask ourselves, why does Luke tell us that Jesus' first ancestor was Adam, the son of God? 
Why does he give us this information? We could have assumed it because Adam was the first man. We know that all mankind is descended from Adam, including both Mary and Joseph and Jesus in his humanity. Why does Luke make the point to trace this genealogy all the way back to Adam? I think it's because Luke wants to remind us that our story and the gospel story actually starts in the garden, not in the manger. Adam was created directly by God. And the Bible tells us that Adam was made in God's image in Genesis chapter 1. God put Adam in the garden, a paradise, to worship and work. But the Bible tells us that Adam fell when he sinned. Now you know the story. The serpent tempted Eve and deceived her, and Eve ate of the fruit, and then she gave of the fruit to Adam, and Adam ate of the fruit. But what we see in that story is that Adam did not trust God. God had told Adam that if he ate of the fruit, he would surely die. And by eating of it, Adam proved that he did not take God at his word. More yet, Adam ate because he wanted to be like God. The serpent had tempted Adam and Eve by telling them that the reason why they were not to eat is because they would be like God. So Adam rebelled against the Lord. And the result was that Adam and all of his descendants died. We see that principle from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul goes on, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And we, we see this truth in action in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 5, we have another genealogy, the descendants of Adam. And there is a commonality in each of their stories. Without exception, but one. The last thing that is said of each man, no matter how long he lived, was, and he died. And when you hear that over and over and over again, we get the principle that death has spread to all men. And so here we see that all of Jesus' ancestors, except Enoch, who was taken by God, share that one common trait, death. So this here is more than just a family tree for Jesus. It is a reminder to us that mankind is under God's wrath and curse. All come from Adam. And so all have sinned and all die. Now we tend to focus on the differences between people. On how we look different, act different, like different things. But the gospel starts with our commonality. It starts with our unity, that our unity is found, sadly, in Adam and in his sin and in the inheritance of death. And so the Christmas story, Luke tells us, is a universal story. It is not an American story. It's not a Western story. It is for everyone. The Christmas story is your story. 
It is for you because you are a descendant of Adam. Now, Luke's narrative is more than just a reminder of this. This history lesson points us back to the garden and to Adam. And it reminds us of our common need. And so what Luke is doing here is capping off his account of Jesus' birth. It comes at the conclusion of the story of the Incarnation. And so you might think of this genealogy in this way. It has become very common in the last few years for films, when we used to go and sit in the theater and watch a film, or perhaps if you watch a film at home, you know now that when the film ends and the credits come up, that is, that list of names of every actor and actress in the film, the producers, the cameramen, the makeup artists, all of that, that you can't leave your seat. You have to sit through all of the credits. Why? Because there's going to be a post-credit scene. And you don't want to leave the theater, leave the room, and miss the scene. Because often, that post-credit scene gives us an understanding of what we have already seen. It gives us a description, a context for the film. And even more, it gives us a preview of what is to come. I think that's what Luke's doing here. He is wrapping up the story of the narrative of Jesus' birth and giving us an understanding of why that story's important and of what we can expect to come from that story. You see, Christmas is the beginning of Jesus' story, not the consummation. And so Jesus is the son of Adam. Jesus is fully human. We must see that. We need to see that. Paul gives us a theology of this in Romans chapter 5. He tells us that all come from Adam and all die in Adam. But Adam is not the end. Jesus is the second Adam. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, writes Paul, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. More directly in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And Luke is making this concrete and vivid. The one who was born this day in the city of David is the Savior, Christ the Lord. And that Savior is born from Adam. He is the Savior of all mankind. There is no person in the world for whom the Christmas story does not apply. In Adam, you die. You know this. You see death all around you. 2020 is a constant reminder of death. We are being told about it all the time. But even in your own life, you feel death in your own pain and loss. But the Christmas story is for you. Jesus is not just a Savior. He is your Savior. Luke is telling you that today. He is the one born to save all of the children of Adam, to reverse the curse that Adam found in the garden. 
Then secondly, we turn to the Gospel of Matthew. And we see something slightly different in Matthew's account. Now remember that there are four Gospels in order to give us multiple perspectives on Jesus' life and ministry. Not all of the Gospels cover every event in Jesus' life. Some cover one event in one Gospel. Others, two Gospels recount the same event. A few are recounted in all four Gospels. And this is true also of the story of Jesus' birth. We see that that narrative mainly in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. They each give different details about the story. So, for example, Matthew tells us about the wise men. But Luke tells us about the shepherds. Matthew tells us about Joseph being visited by the angel. And Luke tells us about the census. And together we put the story of Jesus as one unified whole. On Christmas Eve, during our celebration of scripture lessons and carols, this is exactly what we do. We take readings from the various Gospels and we string them together in a continual narrative to give the story of Jesus' birth its proper flow. There are different perspectives. And so it is with the genealogies. Luke focuses on Jesus's connection with Adam, and he traces that line back. Matthew starts with Abraham, and he works his way forward. And so we might ask ourselves, why does Matthew do this? Why doesn't Matthew follow the same path as Luke? What is Matthew's purpose here? Well, if Luke's purpose was to link Jesus with Adam then Matthew's purpose is to link Jesus with Abraham. Now, why is that important to Matthew? It's important because it is to Abraham that God comes and promises in a particular way to work redemption and to restore his relationship with his people. Abraham is the recipient of God's promise to undo the curse, to redeem a people. That promise occurs in a glimpse in Genesis chapter 3. <coughs> but here, in the story of Abraham, a very specific account of that promise is given. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham. Now notice that God is the initiator here. Abraham doesn't go to God. God rather calls Abraham out of unbelief, out of idolatry. Abraham's father and grandfather worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars. And God comes to Abraham and he calls him out and calls him to worship him. He promises to bless Abraham and to make him a great nation. We see this particularly in Genesis 12, verse 3. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, how will this happen? I'm sure Abraham didn't know exactly, but Matthew gives us the answer. This promise to bless all the families of the earth will be fulfilled, Matthew says, in Jesus. It is through the birth, life, and death of Jesus that God will bring about this blessing. 
Paul tells us this specifically in Galatians chapter 3. He says that this verse about blessing all the nations of the earth is the gospel. He says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And then, shortly after that, in Genesis chapter 15, God then reveals not only His promise, but He reveals His covenantal grace to Abraham. God wants Abraham, and you and me, to be sure of His promise. And so what does God do? He makes a covenant with Abraham. And he has Abraham perform a covenant ritual. You may remember in Genesis chapter 15, God has Abraham take animals and to sacrifice them and divide them in half. Cut the animals in half and place one half on one side and one half on the other side. And this is certainly a strange phenomenon. What we need to understand is, in Abraham's day, that was the way that you made a treaty or a covenant between nations, between kings. They didn't sign parchment papers. They didn't have big quill pens. What they did was the greater king would have the lesser king divide animals up on either side and to pass between the killed animals, the divided animals, and to vow a vow of loyalty to the greater king and to say, basically, if I break the covenant... It will happen to me as it happens to the animals. I will pay the penalty. I will be destroyed and killed. But something fascinating happens in Genesis 15. According to all we know about these covenants, Abraham should have walked between the animals. Abraham is the lesser. God is the great king. But what does God do? God puts Abraham into a deep sleep. And then God himself, in the form of fire and a smoking pot, goes between the animals. God himself is saying, I will take the punishment of the broken covenant. Does that remind you of anything? That should remind you of the cross, shouldn't it? That Jesus, God himself, bore the punishment for the broken covenant. The covenant that Adam broke. The covenant that all Adam's descendants broke. The covenant that you broke. Jesus takes our punishment. That is what he does. And God makes this clear. He binds himself to the promise. And Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation." So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And what is that sure and steadfast anchor? Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus is the surety of God's promise. Jesus has gone before us to show that God always keeps his promise. Then in Genesis chapter 22, a bit further, God reveals that he will provide the sacrifice to atone for this broken covenant. How will God fulfill his promise? How do we know that we can be brought to God? Well, once again, God shows us. He commands Abraham to sacrifice his son. Now, this required great faith on Abraham's part. And we look at this and we say, of course it would. Who would want to kill their son? But there's more than that. You remember that Isaac was called the child of the promise. God's promise was to come through Isaac. And now here, God is telling Abraham he must kill the child of the promise. How can God keep his promise? Isaac asked this question. He's a smart young man. He says, Father, I see the wood. I see the knife. But where's the sacrifice? And Abraham responds, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. And God does. And then we see in a figure what God is doing in sending Jesus to us on Christmas. Jesus is the lamb. Isaiah predicted this. He said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And you remember in the beginning of his ministry, John, Jesus' cousin, beholds Jesus and he says, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you see God's promise in Jesus? Matthew is calling you today to look beyond the major, past the shepherds, the angels, and the wise men, to the Lamb of God. Jesus was not born as an accident. He was born for a purpose, to die for the sins of those who believe in him. Do you believe? Will you embrace that promise? Because Jesus is also proof that God never gets, gives up on a promise. We can be tempted to give up when things get hard. Just think about this year. How many things have you given up on because it's just too hard to persevere through them? But not God. Nothing stands in God's way. Not circumstances, not even the sin of his people. And we see that here in Matthew's genealogy. Matthew doesn't go straight from Abraham to Jesus. He could have. He could have told us that Abraham was the ancestor of Jesus. But instead, he moves on to Isaac and to Jacob, the deceiver. 
And then there's Judah, who sold his brother into slavery. Then there's Rahab, the pagan prostitute. Then there's Ruth, the Moabitess who needed rescuing by her kinsman redeemer. Then there's Jesse, who couldn't spot God's king or his kingdom. And then there's David. But look at how Matthew describes David with all of the wondrous things that God could have had Matthew describe about David. How is David described? He is, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. You see, Matthew highlights David's greatest sins, adultery and murder. And then we read about Uzziah, the king who sinned horribly and was struck with leprosy. And then there are even two of the wickedest kings of Judah, Ahaz and Manasseh, known for their wickedness and unbelief. They are described here as the ancestors of Jesus. And then we move to a bunch, quite frankly, of nobodies after Israel goes into exile in Babylon. But for this passage, how would we know about Azor or Achim or Eleazar or Matan? They're nobodies, except that they are a part of the line of Jesus Christ. All of this leads to Jesus, who Matthew says is the Christ. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the one whom God sent to fulfill his purpose. Do you see here this morning how God always comes through? That nothing can stop God? And do you see how God comes through and does this in remarkable, amazing ways? The people that he uses, the circumstances that he turns. No problem that you have is too big for God. No sin that you have committed is too big to keep you from God in Jesus. God is in the miracle business. The birth of Jesus Christ shows us that. Then we turn finally to the last gospel, the gospel of John. And John begins with a majestic, eternal scene. This is not comfortable and cute. There are no animals here. There are no fuzzy sheep. There are no... Uh, cows bleeding. There are no shepherds. There are no angels. In fact, this gospel begins quite a bit like Genesis chapter 1. We are introduced not to the man Jesus, but to the Son of God. And who is this Jesus? John tells us, in the beginning was the Word. Now think about that. Before all creation, before time, before the beginning. Jesus was. John compels us to go beyond the manger. Jesus is like no other man because he is before all other men and creation. John tells us very clearly that Jesus is God. He was not just the Word, and the Word was with God, but the Word was God. Jesus has all the attributes of God. 
He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is unchangeable. Jesus can do all that God does. Jesus is the one that we are called to worship. He is the creator of all things. That is the fundamental difference between God and everything else. That God is uncreated. He is the creator. Everything else exists because he has created it. And John tells us that that is true of Jesus. All things come into existence through Jesus. All things were brought into being through Jesus. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John wants to make sure we understand this. He not only tells us Jesus created all things, he says there's nothing that is except that Jesus created it. Have you thought about this? You see, our Christmas focus is usually on the birth narrative. We think about the difficulties of travel that Joseph and Mary would have had from Nazareth to Bethlehem, especially with Mary being with child. We think about the problems with lodging and there being no room at the inn. We wonder what it would have been like to give birth surrounded by animals and straw, hay. But do we understand that the helpless babe is the creator and sustainer of all things? That Jesus is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Revelation chapter 4 tells us, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. John reminds us that we must worship Jesus, the eternal God and creator. John also tells us that Jesus is the light. Now, it's not just that Jesus brings light to us. We can mistakenly think that. Light does not exist outside of Jesus Christ. He is the light. Jesus is the source of all life, and that life is the light of men, John tells us. If we are to have light, then we must go to Jesus. There is no other place we can go. Jesus has already brought us light in creation. Jesus is the one who hung the sun, we might say, who said, let there be light, and there was. But we have twisted that light, and we have instead exchanged creation for the Creator. We worship the creature so often instead of the Creator. Now you might say, but pastor, we don't worship animals or the moon, or the stars? No, that may be true. But do we worship money? Do we worship our children? Do we worship fame? Do we worship these things that are created? Do we dedicate our lives to them? John tells us that we are to look to the light, to the one who has come, and to worship him. Because there is a battle between light and darkness. 
Darkness is not just something that is out there that we see and observe. No, there is darkness, brothers and sisters, in here. Sin is darkness. There is darkness within us that drives us away from God. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus cannot be overcome. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, John tells us. Satan had tried for centuries to destroy the line of Christ. Even as Jesus was to be born, Herod wanted to destroy him. And when Jesus came to earth, he came in a fragile manner. We all know that babies are fragile and they have to be handled with care, right? Have you ever had the experience of having someone hand off to you a newborn baby? And you spend about two minutes trying to best jockey to make sure that the baby's safest in your arms. The last thing you want to do is drop the baby or even hold the baby wrong. But for all his seeming fragileness, Jesus was perfectly safe. There is no place of darkness in your life that Jesus cannot overcome. Christmas is a reminder that Jesus has come to set all things right. Do you trust Jesus with your life today? Can you look at the baby in the manger and see the almighty, eternal God who cannot be overcome? If you do, that you will have hope. John then moves past the opposition of the darkness to the excitement of Christ's coming. Now, when we think of the incarnation, when we think of Christmas, we should not be afraid. Our eyes should not settle on the darkness, but they should settle on the light. The true light is coming. Jesus comes into the world to bring God to us. In Jesus, John tells us, the Word became flesh, and Jesus dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. That means we are able to see God in Jesus. We are able to know God through Jesus. Jesus has come because He had to come. Christmas is rooted in the free love of God. Because apart from Christ, we are lost. But God determined to save for himself a people. And when God decreed that, Jesus' birth became necessary. There was no other way for us to be saved than for God to become man and to die the death that we deserve. There is no other path of salvation. You cannot build a tower to heaven. You cannot do good deeds to cancel out your bad deeds. You cannot pay the infinite penalty of sin. Only God himself can and does in Jesus. We need someone to bring grace to us because our only hope is grace. We cannot earn peace with God, so God 
in Jesus brings grace to us. Jesus is the fountain of grace, overflowing grace. Look at how John puts it in verse 16. Grace upon grace. And Christmas is the start of that grace. Christmas is not about sentimentality. It's not about a way to improve yourself or be a better person. It is the event that shows us undeserved grace in Jesus. Christmas reminds us that God wants us to know Him and to have a relationship with Him. And God shows this to us in the coming of Jesus. We could not know God without Jesus. No one has ever seen God, John says. But in Jesus, we have seen God. We have seen His love. His mercy, His grace. This Christmas, are you focusing on who Jesus is? Do you see that He is the hope of all mankind? Do you see that He is your hope? Jesus is a hope that is sure and steadfast. He is the fulfillment of God's promise. God has been fulfilling His promise throughout the centuries. And that promise comes to you today. You can trust in Jesus because He is more than a baby. Babies can bring hope to us, it's true. They bring joy. But this baby is God Himself. Fix your hope on the one who came to redeem you. Fix your hope on Jesus. Let's pray.